Hey, Father. Matthew, 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 Matthew. <laughs> I enjoyed this episode quite a bit. I, I, um, this was probably one of the episodes where I was more silent. I was very happy to sit back and learn during this episode. Yeah, I, I apologize. I feel like I was jumping in a lot no, with follow-up no. questions and that I should have given you more of a No, chance. no, I was, I'm, that's why, I mean, that's not why I'm saying it, but, but truthfully, <laughs> I was very happy to sit back. You're reading my mind and you wanted to assuage my conscience, you know? You're the philosophy major, you know? That's true. Like, so I that's knew, true. I went in, yeah. as soon as it went down the road of ethics, I was like, great, where's my pencil? <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's here's what's cool. Michael Pakaliuk is a philosopher with particular areas of focus in ethics and Aristotle and John Henry Newman. And I mean, his his list of specialties is frightening. Yeah. It's intimidating. He's he's just able Quite to, to do an awful lot. But he's he's teaching in the business school at the Catholic University of America. I mean, it's almost hilarious that he's not in the school of theology whatever whatever the name of it is i don't know he's but he's professor of ethics and social philosophy in the bush school of business at the catholic university of america and this is such a fascinating idea and, and he, he got into a little bit in, in this interview understanding the, the importance of philosophy in the context of teaching business and i think that we could we could do a whole separate ish, episode with him just talking about why it's so important that we have a philosophical foundation or at least the influence of philosophical thought in in the other disciplines. Like philosophy can influence so many other things. Theology can influence so many other things. But we end up talking about him translating scripture. So we've got a, a philosopher who teaches in a business school who's doing translations of scripture. And and brilliantly, the jumping point for the interview was supposed to be uh, Mary's voice in the gospel according to John. The, the <laughs> memoirs of Peter, a new translation of the gospel according to Mark. And then we, we spent spend all the entire time talking about Matthew. Talking about Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. But but a tremendously uh, informative and and I mean I was very entertained personally. <laughs> like I, I said, I, I was a bystander this. for a large part of it. <laughs> no, I had a good good time with him. Uh, so check out the show notes because we've got all his uh, various and sundry books and articles and things like mm-hmm. that linked there uh, so you can get to know him a little bit better. Uh, but really just a fun interview with Michael Pakaliak. Enjoy. My name is Matt Sparaza. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. Today we are talking with Michael Pakaliuk. Uh, about well, I think we got a lot of things we can talk. We've got a, a pile yeah. of books that you've written here, uh, and I think we've got a bunch of other things that we can talk about. But Michael, welcome to uh, welcome to the tangents. Great to have you. Thanks for making time with us. Welcome. Can't wait to start going off on tangents. I, I, I tell my students that I I conceive of my lectures as a series of digressions. <laughs> <laughs> a oh, series of digressions. Right yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> this is perfect. Uh, so you're a professor at the Catholic University of America, right? That's in, right. Uh, ethics, social philosophy, anything else? Well, um, I teaching um, a course we call Markets and Prosperity, which is a kind of introduction to economics. So I'm teaching that in our kind of political political economy unit. Okay, which is a lot of fun. Yeah. I teach professional ethics for accountants. I'm teaching our upper-level accounting students in ethics. And I teach courses in the School of Philosophy sometimes also. Very nice. Okay. All right. I am... Okay, let's just talk about ethics for a second because as a... 
I was a philosophy major in college, and I I look at the way that philosophy courses are, are typically structured for for a lot of students when they get into college, and beyond the core requirements of you know take your entry level philosophy class and then whatever else. I really wish that we could that we could include as mandatory in the the, the philosophical studies uh, part of of every undergraduate's degree a course in logic and ethics. <laughs> I just, I mm, really wish yes. that that was a, an important part that that was recognized that way. How did you decide on, on ethics as an area of specialty? Well, it's, it's more a question of what you can get paid for teaching. I mean, I think <laughs> I'm, an Aristotelian. I'm an expert in Aristotle uh, and lots of areas. I know about lots of things, but if you, my wife is an economist. If, if I want a job with her in a business school, what they're looking for in a business school related to philosophy is ethics. They're not interested in any other area of philosophy in the business school. Ah, okay. So that's that's how I get it. that's how I, I can get hired with her in a business school by teaching ethics. Very but nice. at the same time I maintain that ethics can't be taught. So that's a bit of a problem. <laughs> All right, why can't ethics be taught then? Yeah, I gotta know. Yeah. <laughs> well, because the most important part of ethics is character and er- character has to get formed. Mm-hmm. Character gets formed by by uh, attaching incentives or rewards and punishments or, or, or some kind of pain or suffering, sorrow, to different choices. Mm. And we really can't do that in the classroom. The, well, the only virtues we can really affect in that way in the classroom are, are related to academic integrity and things like showing up on time in class, some, some, some elements of discipline. But the most important virtue for my purposes, um, which again and again you see people failing in this when they're in, they engage in some kind of accounting fraud or scandal, is courage. Because mm. they, they have to stand up to some kind of uh, fraudulent practice, and it may mean losing their job or getting somebody very, very angry with them, and they just don't do it. So I can't, how are you going to teach courage in a classroom? We can't. You can teach it. Yeah. In, uh, West Point can teach courage. Uh, try, Teddy Roosevelt took up mountain climbing when he wanted to grow stronger and courage. But uh, sitting in a classroom listening to a professor teach something is never going to help make anyone more courageous or less courageous. Mm. Mm. That's a that's a really good point. That's a really fantastic point. So how do you then um, prepare these students for the the exercise? I mean, are are you able to at least give them the preview? This is coming. There's going to be these encounters with with fraud, with bad behavior, uh, and it's necessary to know at least the theory of the of the ethical approach. Like, how do you, how do you help them to get prepared for that? Yeah, it's true. You can go a long ways. We could point out that you do need courage in these situations, and if they're in a such situation and they find that they're not speaking out when they should, they could say, "Well, you know, my professor told me about this that you know I'm li- I lack courage." So. And then I do emphasize conscience. So conscience is hardly ever taught in business or professional ethics courses. I really do teach conscience, and I give examples of heroes of conscience, like the White Rose. We discussed the White Rose in Germany, the students who resisted Hitler. Uh, We we teach Thomas More. Um, We we look at, um, and then also in the realm of, of, of professional ethics, people who said that they were responding to their conscience. So I, that, there's a lot of emphasis on that. In the end, conscience can win. I mean, they, they're kind of alone with themselves, and they you know, hear the voice you know, telling them what they should do, and at least they can listen to the voice better, and, and they're a better positioned to heed it. Mm. You know, and that, that's a powerful—I love the example of the White Rose Rebellion. Uh, what, what, they, what those students did 
uh, in a time when when there was absolutely no support for them, at least on the the public mm. level, to have that courage to to speak truthfully um, and to to engage, I think, with the intellectual argument instead of just going along with the with the, the culture. Um, it kind of well, sounds what's really like cool let's... about the White Rose. Yeah, go ahead. You know, go ahead. They were actually they were actually led by a philosophy professor. His name is Kurt Huber, and his specialty was actually metaphysics. Had nothing to do with ethics, but I think that that's and he was executed along with them mm-hmm. right away. I think that's really very very cool. And would you say that there's a? Well, sorry, I shouldn't lead you that way. That's that may be not ethical. <laughs> but if we look at our society today, and if we look at the the course yes. of uh, the way that, or or what seems to be passing for discourse, uh, you see videos all the time on online of this speaker or that speaker getting shouted at while they're at at a college campus. Uh, you see, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not necessarily the best or the most accurate depiction of an argument that somebody made being promoted. How then can ethics, metaphysics, the the what they did in uh, the noble treason? <laughs> Right, the White Rose Movement. What they what they did there, mm. with engaging the intellectual idea and demanding that there be a serious intellectual accounting for the points mm. being made. Um, how can we encourage that right now? Like, what would you see as being the the place where that can be encouraged the most? Well, it's really love of truth, I think. So they, one of their emphases was truthful reporting what actually happened in the Eastern Front with Stalingrad because Hitler made foolish mistakes, right, and even besieging Stalingrad. And then the Sixth Army of Germany was surrounded, 200,000 men either died by famine or, or they, were, they, they, were, they were killed. Um, so just the truth, right? The truth in a, in, a, in a regime in which telling the truth was regarded as some kind of resistance or lack of patriotism. To be honest, I would say the best par- parallel we've had over that recent years is people trying to speak the truth about COVID and its actual risk, mm. um, the actual um, uh, profile of the vaccinations, the risk profile, the, um, the you know, which which groups of people really needed uh, vaccination, or, or there's an argument for them in which uh, it was uh, vaccination is probably harmful. So in natural immunity, we have Dr. Aaron Cariati in California who lost his job because he said he had natural immunity and they, they were still requiring to take a vaccination. So I think that that would be the best mm-hmm. analog in recent years, hmm. trying to be truthful about what was actually going on with the COVID pan- panic pandemic. Yeah. And I think we see it in, in so many other areas as well now. Um, in, instead of making the argument from facts from the science from from just a, a rational argument so often it's based on uh, but i feel that or this this sort of a, a very emotive kind of language but not necessarily a real serious grounded intellect uh, and then also there's the demand from that kind of an argument to suspend ethics in favor of, of something else so uh you can have this group uh and their rights suddenly are are diminished in favor of the rights of another, um, well, or you're a single individual. Who think that certainly to think we're in an emergency situation. This is true. They believe with cl- global climate change. They thought it was true as regards COVID. They they may think it's true as regards healthcare. And what they try to do is they centralize um, 
services and goods and services and in sources of information. They try to control those, and and they and they and they interpret any expression of disagreement or concern or doubt, which comes from a concern for what the, the balanced truth is, as some kind of hesitancy or resistance. So they try to to, to smash that down. Mm-hmm. We've seen that happen again and again and again. Yeah, and it really does go back to abortion. So if you want to go on a tangent, we should say this whole kind of culture of lies. It was introduced with legal abortion because did you ever see the, the the flyer that they give to women when they go get ultrasounds? There's one flyer if they're planning to get an abortion, one flyer for the tr- if they're if they're planning to keep their unborn baby, hmm. and the one if they're planning to get an abortion just, just talks about clump of cells and and the the growth and so on. One you know the other one of course talks about you'll be able to see your baby sucking his thumb and find out whether wow. it's a he or hmm. a she and and bond with your baby and share pictures of your baby. So it's it's in order for women to have abortions or to want to get abortions, it's necessary systematically to suppress the truth about it. So certain elites have determined that they should be getting abortions, and they suppress the truth. Hmm. This has gone. This is, goes all the way back to the to Roe v. Wade. Wow. Now, sadly, with the overturning of Roe v. Roe v. Wade, we don't see any kind of new openness to truth in this matter. If you just look at the the battles that are being fought in state after state after state, we see that mm-hmm. it's just constant lying that's going on. Hmm. So, how how do you find trying to bring in a a perspective that's rooted in an ethical truth that that goes beyond all of this? Um, what well, is, what's think, the experience like? Any, okay, so I think you need interiority. Mm-hmm. And you need some kind of basis in a relationship with God that that's capable of trumping. It mm-hmm. uh, supersedes what you hear in the in the environment and what's coming from the culture, and uh, in some cases, false reporting. So that's uh, to be honest. You know, the fundamental reason why I'm interested in scriptures and I believe a personal relationship with Christ is a basis for real renewal in our renewal in our society. Mm. And I'm I'm a big lover of freedom, and I fr- think freedom takes the form of individuals who love the truth, who act on the truth, and it's not coordinated top-down, uh, you know, organization from elites. It's many, many individuals all who see the same truth, and their actions are are kind of in an informal way coordinated because we're all relating to the same truth and all related to the same Lord. That's my ideal of a free society. That's why I'm 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 translating the. The Gospels, I think, renewal of the Church, renewal in the American Republic, both re- depend on this, and they have historically uh, depended on this. Mm. Yeah. Well, since you're 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 helping to steer the conversation here back to the the point um, and getting us off the tangent, which is good, of of your your books, the Memoirs of Saint Peter and uh, Mary's Voice in the Gospel According to John. So we've got the Memoirs of Saint Peter uh, translating the Gospel of Mark and Mary's Voice. Uh, translating the Gospel of of John, uh, alongside some some really excellent commentary, um, can you just tell us a little bit about how you're approaching this this work and 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 why? I mean, you're giving us the the kind of reasoning why the gospel is so necessary for renewal in the life of the church, for renewal in in American society. Um, but what's your, what's your approach here as you're as you're diving into these gospels? Well, I want to say there's a third book now, so. Oh. That one you haven't seen. It's in, it's a, it's at it's with the press. Okay, it's going to come out with the same press, Regnery Gateway. Mm-hmm. Probably come out at this point because whatever their schedule is, bringing out other books. Probably come out late summer, early fall of next year. They've had the manuscript since August. Okay, 
but it's on the Gospel of Matthew. Wow. And the title of this book is called Be Good Bankers, colon, The Divine Economy in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay. I love it. Nice. And will you get to uh, so, Luke as well, eventually? Luke well? Oh, will you get to Luke um, also? I'd you like know? to... Oh, Luke. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I'm trying to make what I'm trying to make some wealth by writing yeah. these books. But, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm still waiting for one of them to become a bestseller to go viral, and then the other ones will as well. They'll be uptake of all the books. But um, yeah, Luke and God. If God God permits, I'm going to work, work on Luke. I already have an angle on Luke. So I, my goal is to break open the Gospels to to invite people to develop a relationship with our Lord through reading the Gospels. That's what Christianity is supposed to work, right? So, um, I, how do I do that? Well, on the one hand, fresh translations, and um, you know, maybe I was most successful with that so far in, in, in Mark, because what I did with Mark is I, I, I really kept to all his uses of verb tenses and did not try to make them uniform. Mm-hmm. So, most translations of Mark just keep everything in the past in a single tense, but Mark is quickly flipping from tense to tense to tense, and you can't see this unless you can read Greek. Mm. And um, it, I, I take it to be a sign that he is trying to capture spoken language, and he's, according to tradition, he followed St. Peter around, and his gospel is the taking down and irregularizing and, 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 and smoothing out of what Pete, Peter used to preach. So, um, you know, in that book, I tried to capture the voice, uh, personality of Peter. And, you know, in fact, Mark was called the Memoirs of St. Peter by the early church. You find that 150 AD. Do so really? very early, that's what it was being referred to. Yes. I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. And and then the Gospel of John, I, I tried to, so uh, two things I tried to do in each book. First, fresh translation. Secondly, coming at the Gospel through a person. So if you've studied any scripture st- studies, uh, the standard way it's taught now is viewing the Gospels that we have as a result of a process of editing where the Gospel writer, Matthew, has got you know, several scrolls or manuscripts open in front of him. And he's, he's, he's redacting them and combining them in various ways. So they think, and scripture scholars think, it's interesting to uh, view a Gospel as the product of a process of editing. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's the way a scholar would think about something, because that's what scholars do, right? <laughs> but um, I, I think that the Gospels were written long before there was anything like a kind of documentary uh, record that they were basically coming right up, dropping out their like condensate. Like you, you see this in you know, these crystals that drop out of fluid. They're like condensate, which falls out of an oral tradition, mm-hmm. and that it's much more interesting, therefore, to think of them in relationship to various persons, living personalities mm. at the time the Gospels were conceived or composed, and that, that ends up being most illuminating in, in interpreting them. So in the, for the Gospel of Mark, I think that living personality is Peter. Mark, Mark traveled with Peter. He was in Rome with Peter. He was there when Peter was preaching. And, and so what becomes kind of fun from the point of view of scholars is finding Peter's personality and impress in a gospel which is not on its face about Peter, right? So in the Gospel of John, I do the same thing. I have, I think, a fresh translation of John. Uh, what I tried to bring out is the fact that the Gospel of John, you, you, you know, once you point out to some of this, oh yeah, of course, but the Gospel of John is a series of conversations. It's really very different from the other Gospels, which are narratives. It's a series mm-hmm. of conversations 
that come in a kind of uh, narrative frame, but it's just conversations. So I tried to bring that out very clearly. And then I also uh, find, I think, a person in the Gospel of John who's not obviously in the Gospel of John, which is Mary. And so on, Jesus on the cross you know, gave Mary to John. It said that she went into his household. The traditions all say she lived with him for about 30 years in Jerusalem and Ephesus. Mm. Uh, so I, you know, the way I put it is, I don't know about you, but if I spent a weekend with Mary, it would change forever the way I thought about the Gospel, <laughs> right? Maybe maybe an hour. <laughs> give her, to, give, to say nothing of yeah, 30 give, years, give, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, 30 years. Come on, there has to be some effect of living with Mary for 30 years right. on the way you present the life of Christ. So can we explain that, you know, everybody knows there's a difference between John and the other three Gospels. Can we explain that at all in, in terms of his uh, relationship with Mary? Mm, right. That's what that book is about. And then the Matthew book, if I may... Um, there's, there's less to do with the translation of Matthew except to make it more boring than, than it is. I mean, <laughs> I want to say this. Matthew is the plainest, most uninspired writer of Greek. Yeah. Like, almost every sentence is a participle, then a finite for participle. Sitting down, he spoke. Getting up, he walked. He, he did this. It's like you, that's the way he writes sentences, right? So, if you kind of want to show that unadorned, I think that's interesting in its own right, that he yeah. is actually not very interested in the language. He's interested in the, you might want to say the fact pattern that the language is relaying. But then my angle is, I say, well, who is the person behind the Gospel of Matthew? And the way I put it is, it's Matthew. So, you know, the painting of Caravaggio, the calling of St. Matthew, where, yeah. you know, he's with his money bags and friends, and it looks like Jesus is telling him, you know, walk away from that and come with me. Well, what if, what if the purpose wasn't to walk away from that, but put that to use? What if, um, as, as one scholar put it, you know, he called fishers, fishermen to be fishers of men. He called a tax collector who spent all of his time writing and recording and dealing with, with sums and, and rules and regulations to be a recorder, to to um, use his tools, use his knowledge, his skills, which wasn't fishing, in uh, the explanation of the gospel. Mm. So that, and I say to myself, okay, so at the time of when Matthew was a tax collector, tax collecting was done in, in a very hierarchical way. It was called tax farming. And let's, let's suppose he was you know, a middleman, a middle manager in the tax farming hierarchy. And um, he was ambitious. So he would have been very keen on knowing best practice because Roman Rome was the standard. He would have known best practices of Roman banking, Roman accounting, Roman contract law, Roman bookkeeping. Suppose he had this knowledge. Do we see signs of it being put to use hmm. in the Gospel of Matthew? And I take the title, Be Good Bankers. This is itself interesting because there are various sayings of Jesus which are not written down in the Gospels but are passed on in the tradition. And the one that's best attested and that's met, repeated by the most fathers of the church, like a dozen of them, is this saying, be good bankers. Hmm. And, and the fathers put it in this way, this is what Jesus used to say. It's, a, it's like, not that he said it on one occasion, but it's really, really, he's actually very fond of this statement. Hmm. So then, then I say, well, what, what could that mean? What could this mean, be good bankers? And can we use it to look at Matthew? Because he would have known about Roman banking. Let's bring, in, let's bring in what we know about Roman banking at the time. Do we see signs of it in Matthew's gospel? So I kind of put those two things together, this 
be good bankers. It's called an agraphon, an unwritten, not written in the scripture mm-hmm. statement of Jesus. To can you combine that interesting thing to, with this Matthew as as he's he's a man of finance. He's like he's yeah. like these converts like who the... go. I was just looking at this uh, exorcist who did this interview with Michael Knowles. I don't know if you've seen that video, but you know five million people have seen it. Oof. But he was a Wall Street banker. He was a Wall Street banker, and then he became a hermit uh-huh. and now an exorcist. God he uses he God he uses his skill and sophistication from Wall Street banking today. It's not it's not something that he yeah. put away. So yeah. <laughs> is Matthew like that? That I think Matthew was like that. So I'm I'm intrigued by this approach that you're taking because the it, it sounds like you're you're taking good historical knowledge and using that that historical knowledge of the culture, the time, the place, the type of work that he would have done. Um and combining that with then some some personal characteristics that are, let's call them imaginative. You know, you're you're imagining that yeah. Matthew would have this characteristic, or that Peter would have felt this way, or that Mary would have had this kind of influence on John. But it's a logical sort of deduction. It's not a it's not pure speculation, uh, in the sense That's of right. like just from your wildest imagination. Uh, right. Nor is it based That's on right. just present day. Uh, ideas. So, well, a banker does this or a tax collector does this today. Um, somebody who's working yeah. for the IRS is this kind of a person or somebody who's a fisherman today is this kind of a person. No, what you're doing is you, you're, you're engaging the historical and the data that's available to us and then also engaging the language. So I like how you're talking about Matthew's style. And then you're, you're using yeah, that so- to come up with a, a an image or a... a the kind of a speculative narrative frame, but again, rooted in something that's very, very true. It's a new approach. And I think the four gospels, I I have my idea for how I'm going to do Luke. Uh, I didn't, let me ask you whether you knew this, because I didn't know it and I've read a lot and I didn't know until about a few weeks ago. But among certain scholars in the Oxford of John Henry Newman's time, Mm -hmm. right? The Oxford movement, you had very, very good, scholars of the fathers and scholars of the church, and most of them became Catholic, right? Um, They used to refer to the Gospel of Mark as the Petrine Gospel. So what Mm. I kind of conceived myself as kind of breaking out as a new thing was pretty much commonly agreed upon by this group of very, very fine scholars. (laughs) Which to me is confirmation of, as you say, the truth of it, right? So then um, if they called Mark the Petrine Gospel, what do you think they called Luke? Ooh. The Pauline Gospel. The Pauline Gospel, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, because Paul, uh, Luke traveled with Paul. And uh, so now that's very interesting, right? Mm. So think of synergy back and forth between Luke and Paul. Think of Paul's epistles as being informed by Luke's approach mm. to the gospel. Think of Paul's gospel as being in, in, enervated by this, you know, this, this yeah. great romanticism of Paul in the epistles. That's really interesting. That's so I'd like to bring that out, like find Luke, find mm-hmm. Paul as the person behind the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. Oh, that's, that was, that's very cool. So good. That's going to be my that's going to be my fourth. Okay. So the the, the 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 presence, God willing, the presence of Paul in the Gospel of Luke. So then there'll be a nice set, a nice set of four yeah. books. And as you say, they're not they're not devotional books that are just that are abstracted from truth. And that's fine. I love devotion. I love you know priests who imaginatively enter into gospel scenes and 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 reflect on them that's what we're all supposed to be doing right but this is um 
you know, I, I gave a talk in this at Providence College, and one of the, the theology professors said, well, it's very interesting. I thought this was a work of de devotion, a work of piety. It's kind of, a, it's, you wouldn't want to call it a work of scholarship because I'm not intending to make a contribution to the edifice of scientific research, which is, in general, I think I could rather walk, you know, I spent a lot of time studying it, but I'd rather just walk away from it. I haven't found it particularly insightful or edifying. But I, I, so I'm doing something alternative, so to speak. And it's generally been ignored by the scripture scholars, but in this Matthew book, I'm going to start taking some shots at them. So maybe they'll think <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be the thing they might that gets perk their up. Attention. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as as you're describing Matthew, it, what was coming to mind was kind of on the other side of it. So you've got the the written uh, description here of of what Matthew would be like, but um, I'm I'm thinking of the depiction of Matthew in the Chosen. And how he's depicted, yeah. um, kind of compulsive, um, very orderly yes. in his in his thinking and his approach to things, and you see these moments where he's kind of he's not there with with the rest of them in the conversation yeah. because he's thinking through what has to happen and he's very determined. No, it's going to be this way. It's going to happen this way, and to pick that up in his language and in the writing style. Uh, I think that's a that's a fascinating idea that you can pick up on these traits in the way that someone writes and in the structure. Yeah, and in the structure. Right. Uh, let me tell you what I think is the most remarkable insight I've had. Okay, which is that at the time of our Lord, every Roman household of significant size was required to keep a kind of record book of the transactions of their household. Because, of course, businesses were conducted out of households, so a small business and a household were the same thing, right? Mm. And it was called Codex Accepti et Expensi. It's called the, um, the book of the receipts and expenditures of the household. And um, ancient authors, such as Cicero, represent this codex as being divided really into two parts, one side with the uh, receipts and the other side with the expenditures. Now, nobody really knows how it was structured, whether individual pages were divided into or whether the codex was divided into or whether it was just thought to be, uh, as it were, two different types of books combined in one, although the notes may have been mixed together. I mean, one big issue here is that with Roman numerals, there's not a really strong incentive in lining things up like on a spreadsheet, because you can't carry over numerals in the same way as with Arabic numerals, right? <clears throat> so, but in any case, that's clear that it was conceived of as being divided into those two parts. All right, so the Gospel of Matthew. I think the key uh, transitional uh, verse is the, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. <coughs> and, um, excuse me, I'd say that's tradition of uh, transitional because right after that Matthew says from this point onward Jesus began to teach them and he had to go up to Jerusalem and be rejected and 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 tortured and 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 put to death hmm. right? so that's that's when he began the first of three distinct uh, revelations of his passion that he gives to the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew it's the first one right after that right and kind of the natural way of understanding is that well now that Jesus now that Peter has recognized Jesus as the as the Christ, now Jesus has to explain to them what it means to be the Christ. He's mm -hmm. not going to be the king who brings in the new kingdom. You know, get behind me, Satan. That's not the idea here. This is what's going to happen, right? So there's a there's a really logical connection between Peter's profession and then Jesus beginning to get very explicit about what it means to say that he's the Christ. Mm -hmm. He's the suffering servant. He's not the the triumphant, exultant 
you know, ruler of all, right, coming into Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. Okay, well, from that point, that point, uh, you are Peter, you are the Christ, you are Peter. That's that's pretty much exactly halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, huh. right? Right. If you count verses or, or words, Greek words, it's as close to halfway as you can get, right? Um, it's not in chapters because it's chapter sixteen, um, and out of twenty-eight. But if you count individual Greek words or you count verses, it's pretty much exactly in the middle. So Matthew has divided his book exactly in two. That's really fascinating. Okay. Now, it, what's what would the incarnation be like? Would it be like an expenditure or like a deposit? What would the passion be like? Is it like an expenditure or deposit? Well, the passion is an expenditure. We know it is, right? You were bought at a great price. Yeah. It's a payment. The, so the first half of the book is incarnational and has to do with the deposit. The second half of the book, of Matthew's book, is has to do with the expenditure. Wow. And... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and then every uh, you know individual chapters and, and episodes fall into place right. along that grand grand scheme. So breaking down then the gospel in in accounting terms is not ever the kind of thing I would think to do, but it's it's right? kind of fascinating. Well, so I'm, I'm isn't that kind of stunning? It really is, and and I'm actually looking at at this right now because I've got early bulletin deadlines. I try to do my bulletin column, you know, and I've got a few early ones because of the holidays coming up with Thanksgiving and Christmas and everything. So I'm a couple weeks ahead, and I'm looking at the parable of the talents, and it was striking mm, yes. me that the talents that's referring to a sum of of silver or gold. Uh, yeah, either you know, right. uh, by weight uh, or by, by yeah. overall value. And so a talent, yes. 75 pounds of gold or, or silver. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when, when the it's master a- gives five talents, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's heavy money that's being given. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, and so to, to yeah. realize it in those terms, because I think we most often we think of of a talent or something. We're, we're thinking of a coin, or we're thinking of a single thing that was given. But uh, it's so much more than that. And if we get if yes. we put on the accounting hat for a second, all of a sudden, the difference between being given five dollars and five thousand dollars is very significant. And if we yep. expand that even more, the difference between giving five thousand dollars and fifty thousand dollars or five hundred thousand dollars, you start to realize, wow, this. These numbers really, really add up and, and matter, and actually increase the the whole the overall weight of the message. And so, if, if, these people are highly capitalized. That's what you would say. <laughs> yes. And our Lord is a venture capitalist. He's capitalizing them for their, their for their ventures. Mm. And and someone who doesn't venture at all, buries it in the ground, is the one who fails because you're supposed to venture. Mm. And by the way, he comes back and he says, "Well, you should at least have given it to whom." Giving it to the bank, be good bankers. The bankers, the bankers. Uh, that's the that's the only time our Lord uses that word, and that they would have returned interest on it, which is really interesting because interest on deposits is not a Jewish idea, obviously, right? It's coming from Roman banking. Yeah, that's what bank that's what Roman bankers did, and that word that he right. used there for the bankers is exactly the same word that he uses in the saying, "Be good bankers." Now, was was the no interest in in banking? Uh, in in the Jewish culture, was that because uh, you also could not charge interest on a loan? the The Jewish law prohibits the charging of interest on a loan. So, did they yes. modify, like, or uh, imitate the same practice on the other side? No interest on a well, deposit. Well, think about the business model. Think about the model, the basic model of, of the business of banking. You have to, to pay interest on a deposit. You have to be taking interest on loans. 
right? That's the standard right. model for a community right, bank, right? right? You, 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 huh. you do a mortgage at 7% and you pay interest at 3% and the difference is your, is your profit, right? So you have to be able to do that. But, um, yeah, and you know, I'm not troubled by this being a prescription against interest. It, it is very interesting that our Lord seems to affirm uh, the way in which people have handled the question of, well, why was interest prohibited and then it became allowed? It's because in the ancient world, generally people borrowed money in order to make up for necessities that they lacked because of the normal cycle of of, uh, of drought and and pestilence. So you'd have you'd have a harvest that failed, and some people would be clever and wise, and they'd have you know they'd have uh, a grain, or perhaps they're more 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 blessed, and they had grain in silos, and others were not. And the ones with the grains in the silos are supposed to let people have the grain without any interest, because that's part of the human mm. condition, that we help one another get through these times of difficulty. We don't try to take advantage and make a profit on it. That's just what we're supposed to do as human beings. But by the time you get to the to the Roman banking, then the meaning of a loan has, has differed, because now it's a question of the opportunity cost of money. You can invest it here, you can invest it there. So loans are understood more and predominantly for investment purposes, for ventures. Mm has a completely different significance. <laughs> so that anyway, that's 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 the book that's coming out. And I my editor has read she edited the Mary's voice. I think the Mary book is the best book I've written. I've, I've written a lot of books, but I love that one out of all the books I've written. Uh. But she's reading this one now, my editor Regner, and she says, I think this is even better than your last wow. book, which for me would be Great, because I think the last book was really good. I love the Mary book. I mean, I can tell you, you're blowing my mind right now with all of this information yes. about you know the financial background of Matthew's gospel. I don't know if you saw it, but at one point I was standing here with just my mouth open. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another thing that back at the time of Roman law, and this, this arose only for about a century and a half, basically coincident with the early church, that by making an entry in this codex that I mentioned, you could create... Um, chain, create indebtedness or create an obligation or, or create the possibility someone else someone's fulfilling someone else's obligation. And this was called a literal obligation. That was the technical name of it in Roman law. And there are treatises written on this actually. So what that means is that if I wrote, um, you know, a, a, it was a way of, of creating a debt. So if I wrote this down and said you had to repay this debt, then in the future I'd be bound to if somebody wrote it down in his book, it might, with my consent, I'd be, I'd be bound to repay. And it's, uh, I'm not explaining it all that well, as I say it, I realize, but um, it becomes an interesting way to think of the fulfillment of prophecy, which Matthew is concerned about, because he, he talks all the time about how this was to fulfill mm. the prophecy, right? And sometimes it looks like it's something deliberate, like Jesus takes an, an ox, and so take, takes a, a donkey and a fowl, and he, walk, he brings them both in to fulfill a prophecy. And it looks like, well, that's kind of a contrived way of fulfilling prophecy, right? But if you think of it as like this literal obligation that's written in, in, the, in the codex of the kingdom of, of, of Israel, then it has to be fulfilled. Like, you have to pay that off in the future. So our, our Lord thinks of himself as going through the book, various things that are written down that the Messiah has to do, and he, he fulfills them. He meets that obligation. Do you think he's doing it systematically? Um, He's doing it to some extent systematically. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think that, I think with with the intention, like it, consciously knowing what he is doing, I, I don't have any, any yes. doubt about that. Um, yes. 
and then I mean maybe as as you've been looking through these these gospels and and recognizing the differences in styles um so I, I would see it would seem to me that Matthew probably presents these images in a very systematic way piece by piece step by step um Mark I always find has that really rapid fire kind of movement um and yeah. so even the way that you're describing uh, with with Peter, kind of switching between verb tenses, uh, past, yeah. present, uh, however else it is that that he makes the, those switches, whereas Matthew is much more of a pattern in in the way that he does it. Oh, um, definitely, completely, completely stated. I call it accountant's language. <laughs> it's like an it's like the entry in a journal, in an accountant's bookkeeping journal. You just give the date, you give the 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 action and the amount. Yeah, you give the quality and the amount, and it's like his sentences are like that. Well. They tell you when, what, and to what effect, and that's it. And so, in some ways, could the could the fulfilling of those prophecies appear either more or less systematic? Do you think, based on which gospel we're reading? Uh, oh, for sure. Without ever taking away from the idea that our Lord most definitely knows exactly what He is doing when He fulfills the prophecies, yeah. and in fact, He speaks to that several times. I, I do this that the Scripture might be fulfilled, right? But yes. Is it in that in that very uh, like Matthew's systematic way? Is it like where do, where do we find the that part given the the multiple well, narratives that we have? No, without doubt, and you have to look at real kind of fine points about the use of Greek language and how he differs in the way he puts something as compared with Luke and Mark, mm-hmm. without being concerned about whether they're copying one another, which I'm not really that interested in. I don't think that Matthew is copying anybody. But um, I, but you do find uh, subtle differences in the way that they describe things. I'll give you an example. There's one place where I and the, both Mark and Luke mentioned crowds from various districts who came, and Matthew actually breaks down the districts, mm. and it's it's the way in which an accountant would want to look yeah. at a aggregate whole, as as uh, you know how in a spreadsheet you can actually drop down and put units within an entry that shows you how how it breaks down. That's the way Matthew writes that passage, huh. and there are many other things like that. They're all very subtle, but that's the cumulative case over the course of the gospel is really quite powerful, I think. So that's you know that's awesome. yeah that's Matthew and. Um, but you didn't read the book about Matthew because it's not printed yet. <laughs> no, but I am. I am looking forward to buying it. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to that. That's going to be great. That's what we want to hear. That's what we want to hear. <laughs> um, regarding, um, you said it. You know, I would say about a half hour ago. Yeah. Uh, about you know breaking open the scriptures so that people can have this kind of renewal of heart with it. Um, with with uh, Peter's memoirs, I was describing this book to my wife. Uh, yesterday as I you know have been reading through it in preparation for this interview and the way that I described it to her was it's like I said it's like I'm sitting around a fire and Mark is telling Mm. me the gospel Mm. um and and how it's just so spoken you know it's so spoken and how I loved that because there are particular verses two two that come to mind um the first one was the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, and you used the word that when that when Jesus rose out of the waters, um, the Father delighted him in in him, and I was yes. like, oh my gosh, that completely breaks open baptism for me, you know, like yes, 
what what is what is the common phrase in most other uh in most other translations it's was well with, pleased or i'm something. well pleased yeah. with you and yeah. that's just so yeah. formal you know yes. um as opposed to like like i delight in my son yes. you know like i yes he spits on my face and i say <laughs> yes. good job you know and so I, it just kind of changed the way that i thought about you know how my own baptism and my relationship with the father. And then the other one was with the raising of Jairus's daughter. Um, you use the phrase, uh, and I opened to this page because I wanted to read it exactly. Um, I, and I believe in other translations, it says that they were amazed, right? Mm. So comparing amazed to this, to this phrase, it was, little child, I say to you, arise. Right then and there, the little girl gets up and starts walking around. She was 12 years old. Just like that, they are out of their minds with ecstatic joy. <laughs> and I was, I, it kind of made me like, oh my gosh, you know? Like, yeah. And, What's a Greek word that means that could be used for insanity, frankly. Right. Somebody who has, a, yeah. So. Just, just lost your mind. I guess. I, I notice, notice, notice how the translation also goes into the historic precedent present which is what mark does so just like that she gets up and starts walking right the other translations won't have that for the most yeah. part they'll have she she got up and started walking whereas whereas the present tense conveys the viewpoint of the the eyewitness is that right. getting a little bit of the personality of the fisherman then kind of coming in so i says to the guy I says to the guy look you gotta you know so there's that that very present <laughs> uh this this yes. this thing that i'm recounting Definitely. this story but it's like it's Definitely. told in the present and tense and the personality of somebody who's exuberant and he's spontaneous mm -hmm. and he's a man of action. Yeah. Right. So Matthew's first introduction to you really for Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. Whereas for Peter, it's exorcisms and you know, deeds mm. of power. He's deeply impressed. And we know that, right? It's in Luke where Peter's fishing, you know, Duke and Alton go out into the deep and he falls down on his knees, go depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Peter was impressed by the, from the start by our Lord's power. Whereas Matthew's interested in something else, and it's very similar to a point that Newman makes. When Newman is talking about faith, you know, he's dealing with people during his day who 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 argued on the basis of Christian evidences that the you know the the, the, the apostles were neither deceived nor deceivers who were willing to suffer for their what they're testifying to, and they're testifying to miracles, and miracles are a sign of revelation. That was the structure of the argument then. And and Newman said there were lots of people in the Bible who believed without seeing any miracles. And that's exactly what Jesus told Thomas anyway. And Matthew Matthew is keen on this aspect of faith. Faith is a venture. So he has the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is coming down from the Sermon on the Mount. And what happens? A leper approaches him, mm -hmm. right? And what does the leper say? The leper says, if you will, you can make me clean. Right? He doesn't say, I think you're a holy man, and if you pray to God, he will hear your prayer. He, this leper has somehow concluded from hearing the Sermon on the Mount that the man who spoke it himself has power by a mere act of the will to cure him of this horrible mm. disease. That is extraordinary faith. That's what Matthew's interested in. He's interested mm. in that venture. Of course that's a venture. You can look pretty right. foolish and be highly disappointed if you walk up to him and it proves not to be true. That was a clear venture, not based on any miracles whatsoever, mm. as far as we know. It's, it's a very different personality yeah. Yeah. to Peter's. Yeah, I had no idea Peter was a CFR. I had no idea <laughs> he was a Franciscan friar renewal. No clue. <laughs> 
Well, so then as, as we're looking at these, at these different personalities that are coming out in the gospel, first, I think just to realize that the characters, uh, the people who we see, the figures, there's a personality. The authors have a personality. And that reminds us, of course, of the way that the Holy Spirit works using the human author with all of the human author's gifts and particularities, uses that to convey, to convey the truth. Um, going back to something that we talked about earlier, the, the importance of really becoming familiar with the gospels and knowing the Gospels mm. for the sake of helping our church and our world to move forward. Um, yes. As you've been translating these from Mary's voice in the Gospel according to John, uh, the memoirs of Peter, uh, be a good banker <laughs> or be good bankers, uh, what are you finding, do you think, that would be some of the, the really resonating messages that could speak into the life of our church and into the life of, of our society right now? Well, I think maybe what I call the divine economy in the in the latest book um, is the most important, and you find this you find this a very deep um, theme in in Saint Alphonsus Liguori. I think he's the one who taught me this that you must view yourself as in depth that you have been mm-hmm. redeemed from sin, and everything that you have and everything that you are you owe to our Lord, and you want to repay Him with love, that love is repaid with love, love is repaid with deeds, not words. And that that debt, and of course, you know, and after Protestantism, we don't like to talk about debt, we don't like to talk about merit, mm-hmm. but, um, but, but St. Paul does. I have a chapter in my introduction to this Matthew book where I go through the New Testament sh- or, and show that it, this, these financial images are everywhere. It, and of course they have to be, because what's the daily experience of typical human being? Doing business, right? So we spend 8, 10, 12 hours of our day doing business, and our Lord is not going to use the notion of indebtedness and bank. We know he did. He loves bankruptcy for sin, right? So he's not going to use any of these images to teach us the way, what our motives are supposed to be relative to the kingdom of God. Well, he does. And, um, you know, this fundamental debt of justice that you want to repay. Hmm our Lord for what he did for us, that has to be more fundamental than anything else that we do in the world. Mm. Has to be the most basic motive. And so if we want to repay our Lord for the profound goodness that he has given to us, that's going to have implications both in our civic life and in our religious uh, ecclesial life, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Can you can you think about uh, or, or give us some some sense of like, where would you see those implications in our civic life? Where would you see those implications being well, most I, needed right now in our ecclesial life? Well, let's let's go back a little bit. So, um, I just watched this interview with Father Riho. Was that his name? The the exorcist and Michael Knowles yesterday. Mm-hmm. So this is fresh on my mind. Mm-hmm. But Michael Knowles asked him, "How can you do what you do?" Um, and he said, well, let's see, I wake up 4.30 in the morning when nobody's going to be disturbing me. And I say my prayers, and then I hear confessions for an hour, and then I, I celebrate Mass, and then I'm ready to start working, right? So it's like, okay, so uh, we all need a certain amount of time. I wrote an article, and I, I read a regular regular column for the Catholic thing. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a, a call, an essay which explored the question, is there something like a, a minimum of attention the spirit needs 
like the minimum of attention the body needs. Like you have doctors who say, well, mm. you need to exercise 30 minutes a day for three days a week, minimally, for you to be in kind of decent health. Can you say something like that about the spirit? What is that? And um, not to shock your listeners, but I think if you go to the history of the saints and so, you're going to find something like two hours a day you need to spend on things that are spiritual. You need to, you need to spend probably an hour in prayer. Maybe it's a holy hour. Maybe it's, you know, saying the divine office. You need, you need to say the rosary. You need to... I'm saying need in the sense of repayment and also love, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and I'll get to the point of love in another, uh, not that repaying a, a debt has nothing to do with love. I mean, when my children don't obey me, I think it's a failure of love as much as justice towards mm-hmm. the Father. If you, you know, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's what our Lord mm-hmm. says. If you love me, keep my commandments. So this, um, you know, the daily rosary, um, some spiritual reading, uh, you add it all up, it's Okay, I'm going to say it's two hours. I, I said this in my Catholic thing. It sounds shocking, but um, time with our Lord in reading scripture, quiet time. Okay, look, when I was a Protestant, I started with 10 minutes. They call it a quiet time. I don't think 10 minutes is enough, but look, if, you, if that's all you can do right now, then start with the 10 minutes. But you need to have time apart from the world where you pray mm-hmm. and you are in relationship with our Lord who exists and is real and will give you lights, and will give you graces, mm. so that you're not living your life relative to whether people like you on Instagram. You're living mm-hmm. your life relative to our Lord, and everything else is towards him and in his glory. Mm. And then I think that that has tremendous consequences for civic life, for truthfulness, which we were talking about earlier. Let me talk about about love, right? So it's the teaching of the church that our Lord didn't have to suffer and die in order to save us from our sins. It's the teaching of church that God could have forgiven our sins, uh, Adam and Eve, since the, the day after they committed sin. Uh, there was no need in the order, from God's point of view, in the order of justice for him to um, suffer on our behalf, right? So, but he willed to satisfy um, our debt of sin in that way. And this is, I discussed this in the new book, you know, Cure Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. And the main reason he did is out of love, because this is the way he can manifest his deep love for us, just kind of by an act of will, forgiving sins and writing it off, would have not had any effect on us. We probably returned to sinning again. We wouldn't have understood what the price of sin was. We wouldn't have understood how much sin harms him, how destructive it is to ourselves. We needed a clear picture of the, the direness of sin and his commensurate and superabundant, where sin abounds, grace, grace abounds all the more, mm. superabundant love for us. And that is why he chose to undergo the passion. And so there's also a debt of love. Right, so he loved us that much. Can we love him back? Now, obviously not in the same way, but he does want us to take up his cross daily. He did tell us that. So these two fundamental motives of of, of justice and of and of love, and then I also say zeal. I say it's a third one. Zeal is you want to imitate him. Anyone we really love that much, we want to be like. So he you know, he washes our feet and he says, "Wash one another's feet." Right. So also just wanting to be like him mm. is another motive. So these, I think, have to be the three grounding motives of a Christian in, in his or her life. It's wanting to repay our Lord, wanting to love our Lord back, and wanting to imitate our Lord and be a co-redeemer with him. 
and I, you know, I think that this has you know, tremendous. Think about marriage. Mm. Yeah. What marriage means, if you look at things in this way, think about um, openness to children and turning the hearts of fathers to their children. That's what John the Baptist was supposed to do, yeah. right? You might, I, I remember I used to read that and think, "Wow, how can father, hearts of fathers not be turned to, turned towards the children?" Now I'm almost disposed to say, "How is it that they can be?" Because then we see fathers like all abandoning their children. So, yeah. um, you know, turning the hearts of fathers to their children again, um, and then. You know, finding modes of community in businesses which are other than woke, because that's clearly taking up a vacuum, right? This this kind of mutual congratulation of wokeness mm. is is going through businesses kind of like a, an illness, because there isn't real community in corporations and businesses, or most mm. of them, they're not. Um, so, and then, of course, rediscovery of the Declaration of Independence, and then, as I said, the meaning of true freedom, which has to be grounded in truth. And um, and the dignity of the human person and confidence that well-educated persons would have completely re- changed effect on how we educate because we have a bunch of uneducated citizens. So yeah, of course, if I if I were an elite and not a Christian, I'd say my job is to control all these stupid people because they don't know anything. So um, we need better educated people. <clears throat> I'm personally so I think very grateful begins. you're a Christian instead of an elite. Then <laughs> <laughs> I leave, but yeah, I'm, I'm, my tendency is toward vanity. Elitism would have destroyed me for sure. I'd have become a very evil elite person. Somebody, somebody in high school had had a dream. She told me she was. I was back then was not a Christian, and she was a Christian. She said, "I had a dream that you, you became the Antichrist." And I thought to myself, "You know what? That could happen. I really do need some help here." So, yes. Uh, so some van, you know, my. You know, we all need to be grounded in humility, but yeah. um, I think it all starts with a. Per- I, I'm going to sound like an evangelical Protestant, but they're right about this. It all starts with a personal relationship with our Lord. Yeah. yeah. So, speaking of which, not not to head back to the. Well, I mean, you might be happy. I'm going to bring your book back up, um, <laughs> but the, how exciting it is! I remember when I went through my reversion. It was suggested that, so I grew up Catholic, I was a cradle Catholic, but I don't think I read a gospel in full until I was 19, maybe. Mm. Um, and so I remember saying the question of like, well, where do I start? Um, mm. And and it was suggested to me to start with Mark, and I think it was because it was just the shortest. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. But but it, it with this particular translation, in the midst of our conversation, I kind of decided that if someone ever asked me that question, I think I would suggest this book because it presents it in a really exciting way. Um, yes. Right? Yeah, yes. You know, uh, it is the shorter gospel and there is commentary in here and that is helpful, right? But also, you know, now you can you can understand that excitement and, and it draws you into that personal relationship. Um, yeah. I couldn't agree yeah, with you more that, that that's I, where it starts. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really do think the book can play that role, and um, and it be delight me, and it's a daily prayer for for on my yeah. behalf that it does it does help more people in that way. Hmm. Can I ask a question that's just really completely off topic and everything that we've been talking about? But I'm tangents. It's a, this Paul is tangents, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you as we're doing this interview, and I I just I have to ask you. I wear one thing all the time. It's black, and that that's it. I'm I love your bow tie. Is is if I hope that doesn't sound like a weird thing. Um, You've you've tied that yourself, and I've been fascinated for a long time by how the bow tie itself is tied, uh, because it's 20 years since the last time I wore a necktie, Um, 
And so I no longer, I, I no longer know how to tie a tie. I, it is a skill that is is completely gone uh, from me. I'm sure I could figure it out again if I absolutely had to. You're such a priest. I know, I know, but like, I just, I, I think it's great. I, I never wore bow ties until about four years ago. I lost thirty pounds, and I lost thirty pounds over the course of the year by just counting calories. So I knew exactly how much I could eat. And I've gradually got things in line with that and lost 30 pounds, not through any kind of great fasting or anything like that, but just by eating what I was allowed to eat and, um, you know, and then choosing those calories more efficiently, having proteins more than sweets, for example. But then once I lost 30 pounds, I found that the bow ties actually look good on me instead of making me look like a stupid <laughs> buffoon, right? <laughs> which they did, which they did. <laughs> So now, now I wear them because I think they're kind of into, you know they're kind of intellectual. Like if I show up into a room with a bow tie, people think, well, that must be kind of the policy analyst, or you know, he must that's exactly. Like a junior, exactly. That's, that's definitely like the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's why I wear them. But uh, and it, but it, it's taken me a full year to get really fast at tying them. I had this big lecture last April. Um, and you know, us waited on this on the stage of the lecture and to give this lecture and all kinds of influential dignitaries there. And I, uh, I, I, I was caught in the bathroom because I, you know, on the, with the with the kind of the pressure, I was I was fumbling. I didn't. All of a sudden, I forgot how to bow tie. Now I can basically do it, and really, I can tie a bow tie in, in ten seconds, maybe fifteen seconds. <laughs> I love and, it. and I can do it however it's I brilliant. want. So the, this one I decided to make kind of floppy, and you can see it's kind of loose and floppy. Mm -hmm. It's a different different effect. I can do it however I want. That's very cool. That's very cool. So that's a tan that's a tangent. I love yeah. it. There's a tangent oh. for you. I I just I think that that there's there's <laughs> something to uh, the the choices that we make with with our our haberdashery that says something, and it's I think it's worth it. Uh, so I I appreciate the message, and uh, I appreciate that you that you put the time into to learn how to tie a bow tie, and that you've that you've gone with it. I think it's well, it's I, great, very I, cool. I didn't realize this is a video podcast, so just before it went on, I had some kind of you know kind of like sweatshirt on and then I, I, I got the pro the act that you wanted and I saw that I wanted access to the camera so I ran upstairs and put this, this shirt and a bow tie on <laughs> perfect thank you for doing father that father showed thank up you. in Under Armour so it's all yeah, good yeah I know it's, <laughs> my, it's what I had on I had a black Under Armour thing I've got my <laughs> collar on too but you know yeah, yeah, yeah. my office is freezing today I don't know what's going on like it's so cold in here so That's I had to put the sweatshirt on out, you know? so yeah Anyway, yeah, I hard stop. I'm going to go out and get some exercise. Yeah. That's why I had the, the Under Armour on. Yeah. Well, um, I, I really appreciate you making the time with us today, Michael. Um, we've got a whole bunch of his books. Uh, we'll, we'll like put the entire catalog of your of your books yeah. in our show notes here. I think we um, need to do another one of these. I think we just got started. Yeah. Actually, we, we've we need only that. scratched the surface. Tangents two. Yes. <laughs> well. We'll look forward to having you back on then as a another as, as a great. repeat guest. This will be great, Michael Pacalia. Uh, thank that. you so so much for uh, giving us your time today. This is great. It was delight. Thanks. Of course. Hey everybody! I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to further support the tangent, please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform. Following us at the tangent underscore Catholic on Instagram, or even donating at veritascatholic.com. Thank you for all your support. God bless.